This segment was recorded on September 15, 2010. ReachMD XM160 now presents Second Opinion Live with hosts Drs. Matt Bernholtz and Michael Greenberg. Welcome to Second Opinion Live on ReachMD Radio XM160, the channel for medical professionals. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholtz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg. We're live and we've got a great show for you today. It's the most fun show we've ever done. Ever. It's September, summer's over, and we can't help it. There's something about the fall air. We've got school on our minds, and so does the Journal of the American Medical Association. JAMA's entire September 15th issue is dedicated to the theme of medical education. Let's go back to school. Our guest today is Dr. Robert M. Golub, Senior Editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association. We'll be talking to him about JAMA's medical education-themed issue and about the challenges faced by medical students and residents today and where medical education is headed. Down the tubes, like oh, everything that is else. Right. And we're also going to examine the latest trends in foreign medical education. How do foreign educated doctors perform compared to U.S. trained docs? And how do Americans who trained overseas stack up to the competition? We'll check out the outcome stats from new research coming up. I'm going back to school in Paris. And Matt and I are paying tribute to one of the most famous patients in the world in the studio today. Before there were virtual patients, there was Cavity Sam, Cavity Sam of the game operation. He turns 45 this year. That means five more years till he gets his first colonoscopy and PSA. And we're going to take him to the OR today and mark the occasion. You can play along with the home version, as they used to say on TV game shows. And you can play along with the show today with your comments and questions. Did you like that? Please do. Email Come play us with us. at sol at reachmd.com. You can also tweet us or talk to us tweet. on our Facebook page. And join in the oldie timey fashion way by calling 888-MD1-REACH. That's 888-631-7322. But first... Let's talk about what's new and unusual in the world of medical news. Oldie timey fashion way? All right, absolutely, Matt. Well, to paraphrase Mark Twain, reports of the death of the stethoscope have been greatly exaggerated. There's been a lot of hype recently about an iPhone app. We love iPhones. Called the iStethoscope. The Guardian newspaper in the UK reported a couple weeks ago that, quote, the stethoscope is disappearing from hospitals across the world. They're being stolen. As physicians increasingly use their smartphones to monitor patients' heartbeats. According to the Guardian, over three million doctors have downloaded eye stethoscopes. All of them dermatologists. All right. First, if you don't know, eye stethoscope was invented by a British computer scientist named Peter Bentley. And it essentially turns your iPhone into a glorified microphone. So the app calls for you to place the iPhone's mic directly on the four key oscillation points of the chest. And the mic then picks up the sound and turns it into a waveform that you can email to colleagues for review. Here's mine. Some are calling it the new and improved digital stethoscope. But if you're thinking of trashing your regular steth for your smartphone, reviewers say don't kid yourself at this point. So, Michael, don't get ahead of yourself. I don't have a stethoscope. Yeah, <laughs> you never did. For one thing, the sound is reportedly garbled if the phone isn't positioned exactly right. And you better hope your patient is thin because that microphone is definitely not getting through fat. Can't not to mention, on me. Definitely, <laughs> we are out of the picture. And not to mention, the FDA hasn't even weighed in on it yet. But it is reported that they're working on drafting a policy to regulate medical apps for smartphones, so we'll be looking out for that. And to follow up on its popularity, yes, it's true that 3 million people have downloaded the app, but there's nothing to indicate that doctors were doing all that downloading. We're too smart. The Guardian actually corrected itself later, implying that 3 million docs 
might be unrealistic since that's nearly all of them worldwide. <laughs> Tell me you didn't do a double take, three million docs. In other news, our listeners know we're talking about medical education this show. And for most people, that equates with stress. So, of course, we all look for newer and better ways to deal with stress in our lives. Well, here's a stress management technique I hadn't heard of and I really wouldn't recommend. I do it all the time. Taking naked walks in public. Now, reportedly, a German man from the town of Sullingen, 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 favors this activity to relax, or at least he did, until one recent naked stroll through town turned into a manhunt complete with police helicopters. <laughs> Apparently, this 42-year-old man was out for a naked walk. What's wrong with that? When he was spotted by a woman walking her dog, she was startled. I guess he was startled. <laughs> he took off to some nearby train tracks, so she called the police. And the police searched the train tracks, didn't find the guy. So they pulled out the search helicopter to track the man down and arrest him. Now... That is stressful. I'm not even sure what the take-home message is here. But how about this one? Your stress management technique should not be inherently filled with danger, like getting arrested if you're caught doing it. And don't do it in Solingen, Germany, if you're naked. They make knives there. It's the knife capital of the world. Lorena Bobbitt probably got her knife in Solingen. Sage words, Michael. And for our last headline, I don't know if our listeners can hear it in Michael's voice, but he is definitely not well today. He's always been not well, but now he's particularly unwell. I have a code. He came in to do the show anyway, so Michael, this headline is definitely for you. Sick doctors do not take time off to be with patients. Not surprising, I know. But listen up, in a research letter published in the current issue of JAMA, researchers report on a survey sent to 744 residents at 12 hospitals around the country, which asked whether the previous year there were occasions where the residents thought they should have taken time off for illness but didn't. Now, 58% of the respondents said that they came to work sick at least once. Over 31% they came in more than that when they were sick. And in one hospital, every single resident who responded admitted coming to work sick. So, Michael, I, <laughs> I could sit here and tell you that you should know better. They dragged me here and handcuffs today. You're definitely putting us all in jeopardy, but quite frankly, this show would definitely suck without you goading me constantly, so thanks for taking oh, this one for the so team. Oh, you're so welcome. I'll sneeze on you I now. appreciate it so much. All right, now it's time to shift gears and talk about an icon in medicine. Ooh. Celebrating its 45th birthday this year, the game of Operation, and its much maligned patient, Cavity Sam. <laughs> Here are some fun facts on Operation. It was invented in 1962 by an industrial design student at the University of Illinois. Yay. He sold the idea to Hasbro and probably retired. And in 1965, the game came out featuring a naked patient, well, the guy from Germany, painted on an electrified pad. Everyone listening remembers trying to remove stuff from the buzzer-activated openings in Cavity Sam's body. The funny bone, butterflies in his stomach, fluid in his knee, a wrenched ankle, and a broken heart. Touched the sides of the opening, and of course, Sam buzzed in pain. I can't think of anyone in medicine who didn't play Operation at some point, either as a kid or in school or something. I <laughs> killed that man so many times. <laughs> that man is never coming back That's after right. the amount of times so I've shakily tried to get things out of him. And actually, I've seen it in medical schools. In interviews for residencies, some surgical programs will have a student come in take out the operation board and then force them to use their non-dominant hand to try to take things out and the people outside are hearing "Mm, mm, mm," and it scares them to no end (laughs) oh my god and the game has changed a lot we brought a new version yesterday and this isn't your daddy's operation game by any stretch of the imagination now cavity sam has a frog in his throat he's got bad plumbing toxic gas and a host of other somaticized issues (laughs) and get this instead of just buzzing you might get a variety of other sound effects and noises and let me just tell you there is no better marker for patient expectations these days than by getting lip service from cavity sam on the or table so in honor of sam's 45th birthday matt 
a.k.a. Old Shaky McGee, oh, is you. going to attempt online, live, a first attempt ever in the world to remove the ringing in this patient's ear and hopefully not cause any ringing in ours. Oh, too late Ready? For that. This is live, too everybody. Late. All right, here we go. Here we go. I'm going to be coming in for this ear thing. Careful, careful. The the key is being not stressed when you do this. And, oh, oh, God. Oh, no. No, he's still going to make it. He's still going to no. make it. It's going to be all right. Oh, God. Oh. Uh, he's straight-lined. Michael, I have some bad news. You are, I, have, I have some bad news for you. You are not doing my vasectomy. Michael, we lost the patient. I, I, <laughs> try again. Why don't I, you resuscitate him? All right. Well, I got to try. I mean, I'll try. But uh, I got a bad feeling about right. this one. All right. You, you ready? Yes. Because I'm going to make you do this eventually, too. Oh, God. All right. Here we go. Oh. This is, oh, this, Shaky McGee. This is why Matt does radio shows instead of practicing because... You know, it looks a lot easier on, on television. Huh? I know. All right, it's not happening. This guy died. He died so many times over. <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, this was a, this was a really great. I mean, we played this in medical school. Everybody played. We played this before medical school. It's a classical game. It's still being sold. I wonder how much the royalties are on this to the guy who invented it. Oh man, I can't even imagine. He can probably afford private health insurance. Oh, I, I wouldn't go that far, Michael. <laughs> that might be a bit of a stretch. I don't think that's going to be happening anytime soon. Well, 45 years is a long time to play a game like that. That's, that's longevity. Is. And it's neat to see it to last this long and still be played and, and to be used as a benchmark for people right. who go into medicine. So all you medical student listeners out there, go out and get the game of operation and play it. It will make you a much finer physician. Yeah, hold a tournament or two. This patient, in the new version, he doesn't talk back, and it comes with his insurance card already preset. Well, what more can you ask for? All right. All right, let's move on to our interview. And this week's guest is Dr. Robert M. Golub, senior editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association. Dr. Golub is also associate professor of medicine at Northwestern University's Feinberg School of Medicine. He developed the Northwestern University Medical School curriculum on medical decision-making. Dr. Golub is also author of an editorial in the current issue of JAMA titled, Are You Sure This Is Right? Insights into the Ways Trainees Act, Feel, and Reason. We're very pleased he could join us to talk about the medical education issue of the journal. Dr. Golub, welcome to Second Opinion Live. Well, thank you very much. Do you want Matt to operate on you? <laughs> <laughs> Would you trust him? Absolutely. Uh, sure fingers. We want to thank you in advance for being here. Our producer tells us that you're also under the weather today, so you and I have a special connection there. And I, feel, I feel that bond. We're still working. <laughs> Go figure. You know, we're doctors. Have you guys learned nothing from the All articles? Right. That's right. So what's the history and motivation behind JAMA publishing a medical educational-themed issue? Well, JAMA has had something considered a medical education issue well into the, <clears throat> the early part of the 20th century. But for the for most of its history, it was mainly co a compilation of statistics um, related to uh, to graduation and careers, things like that. Um, not too long ago, the the idea was was raised that it really should be a focus for research in in medical education. And what we've been doing over the last you know, five years or so is to try to use it uh, as the way we publish any other article or any other issue in, in JAMA, which is to, to find the, the highest quality research that's being done on interesting topics, in this case in, in medical education, and to uh, devote an issue to, to publishing those studies, to um, in part um, to highlight um, good medical education research. As, as you might imagine, it's, it's harder to do studies in, in education research with the same standards that might be done for randomized controlled trials in um, in cardiac surgery, 
but the principles behind the research are the same, and I think it's become increasingly recognized that the same level of research can be done. So our goal is to try to highlight some of the best research that's being done with the, with the best methods that are available. And what factors go into creating this kind of issue? I mean, are you collating these themed articles over the course of a year, or are you having people submit articles of this nature at a certain point? We issue a call for papers, um, usually try to get submissions to come in roughly six months or so before the, uh, before the issue. But we certainly keep track of all articles that are coming in throughout the year. And uh, in the call for, paper, call for papers, we outline the general topics that we're, we're interested in, although, in fact, we're, 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 we're very interested in looking at all different aspects of medical education. Part of what makes this very interesting is that medical education runs the whole spectrum from, well, not even before medical school, pipelines that can bring people into, into medical school through um, residency fellowships and continuing medical education, re, retool, retooling later on in the career. Um, all of these can have different um, different facets, and we're very interested in considering research in, in any of those aspects. So um, we issue a call for papers, mainly outlining the criteria for for, for rigor of study, because that's that's what we're looking for is, is high quality studies. And then um, as the studies come in, they go through the uh, the standard peer review process that all JAMA research goes through. And uh, from that, we eventually make uh, make selections about what we think might might be the the best uh, articles to include in the issue. If you're just joining us, you're listening to Second Opinion Live on ReachMDXM160. I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, alongside Dr. Matt Bernholtz. Find us on Twitter at ReachMD or call us by phone, 888-MD1-REACH. We're talking with Dr. Robert Golub. He and I are both sick today, but we're here. Senior editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association about the September 15th medical education-themed issue. So... Before we dive into your editorial, we want to share with our listeners the classic quote you chose to open the article by Groucho Marx. The secret of life is honesty and fair dealing. If you can fake that, you've got it made. <laughs> we love that quote. That's how we produce our show. So how did that speak to you for this article? I think, first of all, it's important to realize that there's, there's pretty much nothing for which you can't find some relevant Groucho Marx quote. So um, I think that uh, this particular quote... Uh, Part of it, I think, is it's ironic, in, you know, given that a uh, number of the articles in the issue fo- focus on professionalism, and, uh, and one in particular deals with issues of, of cheating among among med- medical students. So I think there's a certain amount of irony there. But you know, as, as I was thinking through it, there's, there's actually a certain amount of, of truth in it. And um, you know, if, if you think back, well, I won't speak for you. When I, if I think back from when I was a uh, um, second-year medical student, my first experiences in interviewing a patient, um, I really felt like I was faking it. Uh, I think you can speak for all of us on that <laughs> I absolutely was faking it. I didn't know what I was doing. Well, and, and that goes, I, to me, I think that that feeling goes on for a long time. I think throughout your third and fourth year, you, you get more and more fluent in doing a history and doing a physical exam. But I think it's probably not until some point in your internship or perhaps even later that you really feel this is who you are, You're really, this is honestly who you are. So I think a certain sense of, am I, you know, is this really being dishonest or am I faking what I'm doing is something that all of us um, tend to struggle with as we mature as a, as a trainee. And it, but, but even thinking about it a little bit more, I think that you know, the reality is as physicians, we, we don't and never will have all the answers uh, for what we need to do for our patients and with our patients. But we do the best we can. And 
you know, um, I think it's, it's probably pejorative to refer to that as faking, but I think still we're doing the best we can with limited information, with limited tools. And um, you know, some of the articles that we published in this issue, I think, are really geared toward trying to improve that process, to you know, try to improve the process of decision-making and, and cognition. Now, I remember that. I remember being in medical school, and I didn't think I was faking it. I just felt insecure until some point in my senior year, something suddenly clicked, and I felt that I was a physician suddenly. I think, you know, the reality is we're all actors, and uh, I think that's become interest- interesting. It's become recognized in some medical school curricula to think of that in a focused way as, you know, as physicians, as actors. But at some point, um, the boundary between being a self-conscious actor and it being part of who we are eventually disappears. Why don't we uh, dig right into your editorial then? We understand that the editorial centers on three primary themes that summarize the various articles in this week's JAMA. They are professionalism, distress, and cognitive processes and decision-making. Let's approach each of these themes. How was professionalism specifically addressed in this issue? Well, there are a few articles that were uh, focused on that. Um, the first one by um, by Dr. Derby and her, and her colleagues um, addressed the issue of burnout in medical students and measured burnout in uh, students at a number of schools and looked at, um, in a cross, cross-sectional way, looked at the relationship between that and their self-reports of unprofessional behaviors, including things like cheating uh, on exams, lying about whether you'd actually recorded something in a chart. Also, their attitudes toward accepting um, gifts from industry and uh, attitudes toward certain altruistic traits. And uh, they found that there was uh, an association between um, higher levels of burnout and more self-reported unprofessional conduct. Um, another study um, uh, that you mentioned earlier, which ironically is, is relevant to at least two of us on, the, on this conversation, is the idea of presenteeism, that, um, that uh, trainees will tend to go into work when they're sick, uh, potentially putting their, their patients uh, at, at risk in a, in a number of different ways, and, uh, would, which I think could be considered a, an issue of, of professionalism. And the third um, was a study by uh, uh, by Dr. San Lowenstein, looking at um, whether uh, residents who are reminded that they go through a lot of sacrifice to be residents, they don't get paid well relative to uh, to some others, they have poor uh, poor amounts of sleep. Um, that if you give them those reminders, they tend to find. Um, the acceptance of, of gifts from industry to be more uh, to be more to be more acceptable. Uh, the idea that uh, there's a certain amount of suggestibility, and, and what I think was particularly interesting with with that one, is that if you ask them, to, do you disagree or agree with with the, the idea that self-sacrifice entitles you to accept gifts? Almost all of them said, no, we don't agree with that. But even those who disagreed were still influenced and still. Um, and still found the acceptability to be greater after they were given this, this little justification. So those, those are three um, studies focused on some various aspects of, of professionalism. That's interesting, especially uh, presenteeism really stands out to me. I wonder how Michael feels about that <laughs> right oh, now. I was in the office yesterday <laughs> with my cold. I just t- I wouldn't shake hands. I told everyone I had a cold, and that yeah. was it. You start to think it's hard to disappoint Absolutely. a whole day's worth of patients who I think scheduled to see me. Many of our listeners would identify with that when they hear that, that kind of behavior. What's amazing to me is the comments from patients when you say I have a cold, they go, 
And they mean it. Really, doctors get sick? Mm. And I have to say, well, you know, before I got my MD, I was a human being and I still am. <laughs> Patients don't get that sometimes. How about cognitive processes and decision-making? How is that handled? There were three articles, uh, research articles that focused on it, I think an, uh, an editorial that, that tied them together very nicely. The first article was this one I just mentioned about the uh, being influenced by um, unconscious suggestions that um, um, can make you susceptible to viewing, uh, viewing uh, professional issues differently. Um, the, the second one by... Um, by Dr. Schwartz and colleagues looked at um, well, what's called contextualization, the, the idea that you should potentially approach patients in terms of diagnoses and management differently based on the context of their illness or their symptoms, something that might intuitively be obvious to, to anybody who practices medicine, but we don't always do that. In fact, the authors in another study documented that physicians often don't do that. They ignore these signals that there might be a contextual issue like a financial constraint that could um, be actually causing the patient's problem and focus more on the physical issues. Um, and Dr. Schwartz and colleagues um, developed a curriculum to instruct students on how to assess for these con potential contextual flags and found that students who went through this curriculum I not only identified the issues more, but made more correct management decisions. They didn't overlook things that, these aren't trivial things, these are things that could actually have major impacts on, on, on patients. Um, the third one um, by Dr. Mamaday and colleagues focused on something called the availability bias. Now what that is, that's an unconscious process. We're not aware of it, but we have an, a natural tendency. We don't, I don't mean just physicians, but everybody has a natural tendency to weigh the likelihood of something based on how easily it comes to mind. So if you've read something in the newspaper recently or something that's covered in the media frequently, we tend to overweigh the likelihood that it really occurs. Physicians are particularly susceptible to that because you might go to a grand rounds on an unusual topic, next day see a patient who has symptoms that might be consistent with that unusual condition, you'll tend to overweigh the likelihood of that. So what these researchers did was, first of all, provided what may be the first actual documentation that this seems to occur in medicine. It's been theoretically shown to be present, but they, they've demonstrated that it actually apparently does occur. But they also um, did a randomized trial in which the residents who demonstrated this bias were then given a process to reason through the, uh, the, diag the diagnosis of the patient, and by this uh, process they were able to overcome to a large extent the bias. I think this is great. Listen, there's so much more to discuss in this article. We're like only a third of the way through our mm -hmm. questions for you. I hope you'll come back at some time and, and finish this discussion with us, but we really can't go on today because of time constraints. Oh, I'd be delighted to. This is great. Thank you. Our guest today has been Dr. Robert Golub, Senior Editor of the Journal of the American Medical Association and author of the editorial in the September 15th medical education issue, Are You Sure This Is Right? He and I are both sick today. We're both here, and we discussed it today, so go back and listen to the interview again. Insights into the ways trainees act, feel, and reason. Dr. Golub, thank you for joining us today on Second Opinion Live here on ReachMD. Please come back for a second show. We have a lot to talk about. Oh, it was my pleasure. Anytime. Thank you. You bet. That was great. Some of the stuff that he said today, Matt, was brilliant. I mean, I teach medical students that come out of Loyola in my office, and I mm -hmm. talk to them about those contextual things in patients, to be so present to patients that you are aware of other stuff besides their aches or pains or chief complaints. And that's part of really being a complete physician, I think, to see that person as not just 
a pain or an illness, but all their other life factors thrown in, into the mix. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'd recommend to anybody listening that they read that article because it's a great summation of a lot of the research that was going on that went into making that issue. And it gets into a number of other topics that we didn't even begin to scratch the surface of. We're going to have him back and talk more. All right. Well, why don't we move on now to the ReachMD Forum. Why don't we? And a study that came out in the August issue of the journal Health Affairs, comparing cardiac outcomes and mortality rates from patients treated by foreign educated doctors versus doctors trained in the United States. A quick refresher here is that foreign medical grads now make up one quarter of all practicing doctors in the U.S., about one-fifth of those are Americans who studied abroad, while the rest were born in other countries. Now, the study found that although American-born doctors who studied in other countries didn't perform as well as their U.S.-educated counterparts, foreign-born doctors more than measured up to U.S.-educated doctors. Right. The lead author, Dr. John J. Norsini, president of the Foundation for Advancement of International Medical Education and Research in Philadelphia, said that historically there was concern about the competence of foreign-trained doctors. Some reports in the 90s indicated they had lower test scores and performance ratings, but others showed that by the mid-90s, international medical grads were outperforming U.S. grads on tests in internal medicine. So the jury wasn't out on this issue. The researchers analyzed records from over 244,000 hospitalizations, that's a lot, in Pennsylvania between the years 2003 and 6. All the patients had congestive heart failure or had suffered heart attacks, which were two conditions they thought provided good baseline gauges for quality of medical care. Oh, you're right. <laughs> interesting. And um, here's where it really got interesting. The patients were treated by about 6,000 doctors. About three-quarters of these were born and trained in the U.S. The rest had trained in other countries, and most of them were foreign-born. Only about 400 were Americans who had trained overseas. And the results? Patients of foreign-born international graduates had the lowest death rate at 5%, while patients of American docs who trained overseas had the highest death rate at 5.8%. Now, patients of the American-born and trained doctors fell in the middle with about 5.5%. They all seem pretty close to me, you know, when I look at it, but apparently it's statistically significant. And even if they all evened out, I think it's still a decent case made for foreign-born, foreign-trained docs showing good competency, hey, right? if you're one-tenth of the percent that dies, it means a lot to you. Absolutely. Yeah. And there's interesting recognition of that in practice these days. In fact, we found a hospitalist from California who runs a popular video blog named ZDog MD. He's got a great take on the subject as the son of two foreign medical grads. His parents are both physicians trained in India, and he says their skills are unbelievable. Unbelievable. Check out this clip where ZDog MG pays homage to his father's artistry with the physical exam. My dad in particular is something else. He's always lecturing me about the superiority of how he trained. He told me about a patient who came in with some right-sided abdominal pain, and it really to me sounded like an infected gallbladder or a stone or something like that. And I said, did you get an ultrasound? He said, what? Ultrasound? Why do I want that? I have perfectly good two fingers. I said, what are you talking about, Dad? He said, I just percussed the hell out of it, man. What do you need ultrasound for? Check it out. Two centimeter, gallbladder stone. I believe it is lodged in the neck of the gallbladder. There's a little bit of pericholecystic fluid. Suggest clinical correlation. Unbelievable, man. You know, the guy will never do any diagnostic tests because over the years he's developed his physical exam to just such an incredible extreme. His ears have become huge and bat-like. So when a pregnant woman comes in, he doesn't need to do an ultrasound. He just points his mouth at the belly and goes, listens, and he's like, it is a boy. Approximately 26 weeks. <laughs> very funny. These are very funny comments, but he's making a point, a serious point. 
When you don't have the technology at your fingertips, your fingertips better know what they're doing for physical exams. <laughs> you know, before Absolutely. we had all this technology, doctors were able to percuss and listen and do things. And we tend to lose that in the technology. You need both. You need to have it. Yeah, of course. But remember the movie, The Day the Earth Stood Still, when all the electricity disappeared? Well, you better know how to listen to a patient's heart without your iPhone. Yeah, and only when you're stripped of that does one right. really find out their true merit, their true worth as a physical exam practitioner. I mean, how many times have we seen people, both of us, who are foreign trained, who have just ridiculously remarkable physical exam right. skills? So how about American physicians trained internationally, such as the Caribbean? Matt? They didn't fare as well, and the yeah. authors of the study we talked about offered two possible reasons. One is that many of the Americans who study medicine elsewhere do so because their grades and test scores were just too low to get into medical school in the States. Okay. So if you put a high emphasis on that, then they may be less capable in the first place. Another possibility is that some of the med schools overseas are simply not up to par. But Z-Dog MD, thank you for that clip. It really shows us something important. Oh, it's hilarious, too. Mm -hmm. I mean, I have to tip my hat off to this guy. He's quite talented. Absolutely. And I hope that we get to... Uh See more from him. <laughs> so we're going to have to teach you how to work those tweezers in the operation game and use maybe, your fingers. Maybe, but I guarantee you right after this show, you're going to take a stab at it, and we'll see who's really got the worth and the merit when it comes to the game of operation. Dermatology always wins. <laughs> <laughs> and with that, I think it is about time for us to bring this highly, highly educational half hour to a close. Bzzz. Actually, we've got a pool going on to see who, who's going to take the real crown of Operation Champion. It's not going to be me. I guarantee you that after what I just demonstrated. Thanks for joining us. I'm Dr. Matt Bernholz. And I'm Dr. Michael Greenberg, the real deal in the Operation game playing since 1965. For more about Second Opinion Live on ReachMD, be sure to visit our website at reachmd.com SOL. Give us a shout on Twitter or Facebook and check out our free medical radio app on the iPhone. Thank you to Tony. Thank you to Paula. Love to Derek, my grandson up in Wisconsin, who's up in the hospital. Thank you for listening. Keep your radio dialed into Reach MDXM160. And Let's, here we go. We Operation. Go. It's another round here. here We're we ending go. with a buzz. Oh, God. You lose. Malpractice. Malpractice suit. I give up.